I, I had a sense that my back was broken. And I sort of wanted to, you know, but I knew that it was dangerous if I moved because I could be completely paralyzed. So I lie there and I, I, I try to think, what do I do right now? Do I move my head? I don't move my head. What do I do? Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Uh, today's episode, we're talking to Henry Gold. Henry is the founder and director of TDA Global Cycling, uh, and TDA stands for Tour d'Afrique, and that is based on their kind of their flagship trip, which is a, a tour clear across Africa from Cairo, Egypt, to Cape Town, South Africa. And this started back in 2003 when Henry and his friend had been uh, just tossing around the idea for years about about bike touring across Africa and making it about a, a bigger purpose. Um, Henry had been involved with a, a number of nonprofits at that time. He had a entire career with engineering and wanted to do something different. And this this was the idea. This is what they came up with was to just, you know, tell their friends, uh, get the word out there via the news, which actually worked really well. And they got over 30 people to go with them. Uh, and by the way, they didn't really know anything. They just went and made it happen. Bike tour across Africa, almost unplanned. And no one quit. A few people were injured, but everyone was okay. And it started this entire trajectory of Henry's life later in life by his own admission um, after 50 of doing this incredible new career of taking people on these unbelievably long life-changing adventures. And so I hope you enjoy the story. Henry talks a lot about his life, a lot about some things he's gone through, goes into some details about uh, some of the stories that he's been through, um, some of the things he's endured, as well as uh, some of the things his family's endured. Uh, But before we jump into that, I would love to tell you about a new podcast that's out by by Expedia, and it's called Out Travel This System. You know, as the world is opening up, I know you're probably tired of that phrase, um, so is travel, so is this opportunity to do things like biking across Africa. And sometimes, you know, that inspiration through a podcast, wink, wink, um, it helps us get out there and helps us do more adventures. And, and a big part of adventure is obviously travel and getting there. So if you could use some inspiration or if you would like to, to listen to a new podcast, something else besides this show, we know this one's your favorite, but this might this might be your second favorite. You never know. Uh, I would definitely encourage you to listen to Out Travel the System. And speaking of travel, let's get right into Henry's story. And again, thank you for listening. All right, folks, welcome to today's episode. Very excited to uh, to get to know Henry and, to, and talk to Henry uh, and, and, and about his experiences, what he's done over the years, and, and also about his company. Henry Gold, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have you. I'm excited to chat. Where are you coming from today, and, and where is home? Home is Toronto, Canada. Yeah, uh, Midtown, where I own a nice little uh, house and... and uh, and a nice little ba- uh, backyard. So uh, during COVID, that has been a very, very useful and practical. I grow my own vegetables as much as I can. I, I eat more than I grow, of course. <laughs> <laughs> my goodness, that's a that sounds like a nice little setup. 
I've been very fortunate. I think uh, essentially all my life been very fortunate. So, I mean, not everything is always perfect, but, you know, when you travel the world and you see, uh, and when you come from the background that I came from, my parents and so on, um, I, I think uh, <clears throat> it, it's always a, a way to keep strong, but it's also a way to keep things in perspective and, and enjoy what you got. Well, t- well, tell us about that. What what kind of family did you grow up in? Were, were y'all adventurous, or did you kind of have to discover that on your own? Uh, no, I wasn't adventurous, uh, although I did have a very adventurous mother. I grew up in uh, eastern Slovakia, or what used to be Czechoslovakia, under the communist system. Um, I was born in 1952, so I'm... I'm a, a youngster, as you can tell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I was there until I was um, the age thirteen, uh, where we it was in a we lived in a tiny town. I call it the village, essentially. I think two thousand people. It, it was a type of a childhood uh, that many many people experience when they live in very small places. You know, you have a lot of freedom. And uh, essentially, everybody you know, everybody they know you, so you can't get away with too many things if you're big, 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 when you become too mischievous. But I had the freedom that, that the children have in that sort of situation. I had a bicycle from young age, so I could roam around to villages and forests and so on. And I did have one uh, one teacher that obviously made an impact on me. Um, uh, it was, I think, from grade five on, uh, well, I was only there for a couple more years, who had this theory that, you know, you explore the world, but you first started in your own surrounding, and you, you keep making your circle bigger, um, and bigger and bigger, and and when I look at my life right now, it's sort of uh, interesting, because, uh, you know, it's, it's essentially what has happened, you know, whenever I come to a place, I was explore the near surrounding and it sort of grows, you know, and I get to a new city or a new town, I start with what's around the hotel or, or what's around the campsite. And and then I just tend to uh, explore more and more as, uh, you know, with time and, and the resources available, whether it's walking or, or cycling and sometimes obviously with a car. I have to tell you, I'm the, I'm the same way. I don't, I don't think I can, one of the, my favorite things to do is just go down a new road I've never been in my town. Or just, you know, it's all around you, just turning over these little rocks. It doesn't have to be these big, grand things. And it really is just, let's see what's down here, or let's go this way. And, exactly. and that's been just an awesome way to live, you know. It, it keeps adventure close. Yeah, and curiosity and, and so on, all of these things. I, I, I'm a big fan. I always preach it. Uh, drives my uh, drives my partner a little crazy because whenever we go out, I always go. I, I was want to go just a little further, just a little further. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, it serves you well because now you know, you've been doing this for a living for a long time. But but what were some of the things that that led up to that? So you had that influential teacher. Uh, did did you start exploring it, it, with this curiosity in mind in in a bigger way or in a more organized way at an early age? Well, no, what happened at the age of 13, we emigrated first to Israel and after three years to Canada. And, uh, you know, and that kind of exploration is forced on you, whether you like it or not. You come to a new place, you don't speak the language. So first, you know, you you, you, you learn language, but you just learn about your surrounding again, sort of how to survive, essentially. Um, I was sent the age when I moved to Israel, I, I was sent to an <clears throat> agriculture boarding school of a sort, but we had to work half a day and have a, go to school half a day, and that's where I learned Hebrew. 
then after three years, we emigrated to Canada, where um, I, I finished high school and went to university, did my degree in engineering. Um, but that kind of a instinct now that, you know, once you leave home, uh, that instinct of exploring other places, you feel more comfortable. You don't worry about going to places you don't speak the language. And that sort of was kind of already part of my life. And, um, and then I was very fortunate at university again. Um, uh, the university I went to had a winter carnival. If you participate in a winter carnival, they had a draw, and the draw was a ticket to to um, to fly to Europe. But the condition uh, of the draw was that you had to be actually present in the in the room when they were drawing. And so, um, in you know, at the end of the evening uh, at the ski hill, we were. Uh, in this this bar type of a thing, and and they were drawing names, and most people already went home or, or left, and then one by one they kept drawing names that that uh, a pe- person wasn't in there, and then as they were drawing, I said to myself, I said, what will happen? Well, how would I react if, if they called my name or my number? <laughs> of course, the next thing they did is actually called my name or my number, and so I, I won this trip to Europe uh, or a ticket to Europe anyway. Um, so again, very fortunate. Where, where did you go? How, how was that trip? I, I flew to Paris from uh, Montreal to Paris, and then I hitchhiked around in, in Europe for the summer. Uh, literally hitchhiked. I was 19 years old. I didn't even have a Canadian passport. I only had a laissez-passer, if you know what that is. I don't even know if people know what it is. I don't. It's a document which allows you to cross border, borders. Um, and I hitchhiked through Europe and I came back and again, uh, you know, the, the four was said, <laughs> you know, once you go through all this kind of adventures and meeting new people and, and, uh, and just, you know, very stimulating. You meet people from around the world. You, you people were treating me very nicely overall. And, um, so as I said, the stone was set and you just get that urge of then all the time, you know, to explore and, and to go somewhere. And that's how it was. And then, uh, so I graduated uh, in engineering. I, I worked as an engineer for eight years um, for actually for multinational, American multinationals. And then I wasn't particularly happy as an engineer. I didn't think this was my, my calling. Through coincidences, I met a medical doctor, a young medical doctor, just finished university, who wanted to set up a, an NGO, an organization, a voluntary organization that would work in Africa, sort of like what Netza San Frontiers is. Doctors Without Borders. And we chatted, we chatted, we chatted. And uh, eventually I, I, I said, you know what, I'll help you get it off the ground. He didn't have any practical skills, any, you know, not very pragmatic individual. Um, so I said, I'll, I'll come in six months and I'll go to Africa. I'll set up the first project. And we did get the funding and I went to Africa for six months to Sudan, Eastern Sudan. This was just before the <clears throat> famine hit in Ethiopia. You may remember, if you're old enough, that horrendous famine where over mm. a million people died. I was at the border, and we were treating uh, all kinds of people who were coming through. And and um, and I did that six months. It was, again, a, a tremendous learning experience. And I came back. When I came back, I sort of decided I was going to move on because I wasn't happy with the approach of Doctors Without Frontier, because they were doing what I call emergency work, and I'm an engineer, I like to see long-term. Sure, when I break an arm, I you know I need to go to the emergency, but really the trick is to, to heal and, and to go back to normal life. And so I said to the doctor, you know, if this is what you want to do, that's fine, you know, I have no problem, but uh, no future for me in this. 
Um, but um, but he changed his mind. He said, "Okay, let's do it your way." And we set up, we continue with this organization. Um, and at that time, um, actually, the the news, the BBC just broadcasted this horrendous footage from Ethiopia, where was actually got, happening inside Ethiopia. Uh, there was some Canadian group was going planning to or go there, and they they asked me because I came from the border and. And they asked me to give him a, uh, some some briefings. And when I went to the briefing and the question being asked, I said to myself, oh, my God, this is going to be a disaster. These people have no idea what they're doing. And uh, so I spoke to to my partner and the doctor who, who was basically, he was the president. So he was the volunteer, if you will. And we decided, you know what, we're going to send a mission to Ethiopia directly. We're going to get organized. We're going to do our own thing. Um, and we did. So I went to Ethiopia and, and worked a little bit there and set up a, um, uh, a campsite, a campsite, a base camp. Um, and the organization then just stayed and grew and kept going, growing from Ethiopia to other places. And for nine years, we went from essentially from zero to nine million dollar budget a year, uh, several countries in Africa. And I was getting burned out. Uh, the bigger the organization, the more successful it became. The more the demand to raise more and more money, and the more the, the then the demand by the by the founders to tell you what to do, how to do, and when to do. <laughs> and I just didn't like that, uh, you know. And nobody wants to support you when you're starting out, and then when you are a success, then everybody's telling you how to do it. <laughs> I decided, you know, I, I had enough, and uh, and I I left. The organization is still around, by the way. Um, it has contracted and doing their own thing. That really, besides sending them uh, <clears throat> a little bit of money every year just for old times' sakes, so I, I, I don't really have anything to do with them. But it's still around. Um, and so I did that for nine years. And uh, and uh, but again, got a good taste of Africa. Learned a lot, tremendous amount. Um, very satisfying. Very, you know, it's it's always to me. It's it's. Uh, I learn a lot about myself. How I act under stress and pressure, and I, I realize that I actually thrive on it to a certain extent. Um, and that I think comes from genetics. I think it comes from my mother particularly. And uh, and in fact, that's what I was wanted to find out. I heard my mom was a survivor of Auschwitz concentration camp. Three years. No kidding. Holy cow. I knew the stories, I knew, and, and you sort of always, as you grow up, you sort of measure yourself, well, you know, how, how tough could I be? How would I react to stress? How would I do? What I would do when, you, you know, when, when essentially, <clears throat> I don't want to sound too dramatic, but when your life is on the line, you know, what do you do? And so, you know, Africa, working in war zone in Mozambique and Ethiopia and other places, as I said, it's 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 challenging, but it's in many ways it's the highlight of my life. You know, when you when you're helping people and and you seeing you see with you know in, in front of your eyes when right? when you come to a disaster situation and you come there two years later again and you're seeing that trees are growing and people coming and and, and hugging you and saying thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, there's no bigger satisfaction in life than than ha- having an old man running to you and hugging you because because you helped, you know, you did something for his town, for his village, for the area. Um, so that's what 
And, and as I said, then I, uh, after that, I was a little burned out. I decided uh, I needed something else. I came back to Canada, but I wasn't particularly happy with Canada. Uh, I thought I needed something different. So I decided to go back to Israel, where, as I said, I had some interesting teenage years and I spoke the language. So I went there and again, uh, it was supposed to be just for a year. I ended up there nine years working with peace issues and environmental issues and transportation um, uh, and and sort of thing. I did that for nine years and then I came back to Canada and and I was actually <clears throat> trying to get a project going with the World Bank to in the Kalahari Desert to, to deal with the Bushmen to set up a income income generation projects with the Kalahari Bushmen and it was a con- competition with the World Bank something they called idea um, marketplace of ideas where they would they pitched around a competition around the world where where they saying you know you people out there know better than we sitting in ivory towers at least you keep telling us so we're going to we're going to accept uh, ideas for projects from around the world and then the best of them we will fund so um, my sister, who happened to live in Washington, in fact, happened to, to work in the next building for International Monetary Fund, she said to me, while well, I was in Israel, she said, this is for you. You always think you can fix the world. <laughs> so here's, here's an opportunity, your original ideas. Uh, so I started this whole process. It was a complicated process where you first submit an idea in one page, and if they, you know, they winnow it down, and you go to the second round, and third round, and fourth round, the fifth round in the dance. I, I, I and and about 150 people, 150 projects from around the world were invited to Washington D.C. to for this final, where they're going to choose about 40 of them or so, 40 or 50, and they're going to fund them. So my project was one of them, and uh, we came to Washington. Sorry, we didn't go to Washington. What happened was 9/11 hit. Um, and everything was delayed, and and, um, and eventually there was a final in, in literally in two in in um, I believe it was in January two or two, um, and my project was to a certain extent dependent on on the tourism, and of course because 9/11 killed tourism for a while, um, so I wasn't one of the people who got elected or won the, the trip. And I sort of said, okay, you know, what am I going to do now? And and I had this other idea of doing a bicycle tour across Africa, which is a different story, how it originated. And I said, well, let's try this one. Uh, if I can't have this, you know, if one door closes, another door opens. And, and basically that's how I got into the Tour de Afrique or into the starting this company. Yeah, tell, tell us about the origin of that and, and how, I mean, that's a, that's a big change, and that's a huge idea. Huge idea. So uh, the origin of the idea comes goes back to when I literally was working in Ethiopia, and I saw this, uh, and I'm sure most of us seen these pictures of uh, particularly women carrying all these loads in Africa, um, poor women, and uh, whether it's going to find wood or whether it's carrying water or whether it's carrying produce to the market. That's the mode of transportation to many, many villages. In fact, Ethiopia, it was in those days, and that's not that long ago. You know, there were two or three main main, main arteries, and the vehicles were rare, and, and trucks are usually big trucks for big companies, you know, either Coke or, or beer or, or food being transported by government uh, officials. So uh, the transport was very min- limited, and... Um, 
having grown up in Slovakia, which was sort of, you know, after World War II was, uh, it, it, transport was also a major issue and, and people used bicycles. And, and of course, I knew from engineering time and from, you know, India and China that bicycle was the way to, to expand your market. So I would see this woman and I said to myself, you know, what, what Ethiopia and what Africa needs is cheap bicycle, cheap, rugged bicycle. Now, they were bicycle. You could buy a bicycle from China or from India. But a bicycle that would cost $35, $40 in, in India would, would cost $150 to $200, $250 in, in Africa. And, and, you know, that's just beyond any villager. That's just no way. So I kept saying, you know, how do you, how do you lower the market? Well, you lower the market by creating competition. Um, and so I, I sort of thought, well, somebody's got to set up a factory in Africa and, 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 and force a reduction of, of, of uh, you know, create a competition, uh, reduce the price. So um, uh, that's, this was an idea. I was busy. I, I, I was busy with my organization. I was also that time producing documentary films about Africa. Um, with some other partners as well. I was very busy. But anyway, some Canadian fellow with an MBA who I actually met in Sudan approached me and says, he asked, Kenny, I want to work with you in Africa. So I said, look, I have this crazy idea. You have an MBA. Um, maybe we can raise some money to send you to Nairobi and do a feasibility study for uh, producing bicycles in Africa. And he liked the idea, and we put some proposal together, and lo and behold, we got the money, and he went off to uh, Nairobi and uh, for six months then to do a feasibility study. And and uh, he he um, as I was sitting with him in uh, in Nairobi discussing, it looked the feasibility looked good. Uh, it looked like uh, it could fly. We even had local support. Some finan finances were coming around. We could do it. So we thought, well. You know, let's take it next step. Let's start thinking how we could set it up and what it requires. And and so one of the questions that he popped out, well, okay, and how are we going to market this thing? How are we, you know, funding is going to be difficult, um, and particularly in marketing. And I said, well, that's easy. We'll just do what Branson does. You know, Branson, the multi-billionaire from Eng England, the adventurer. Oh, yeah, Richard Branson. Of course. So I said, we'll do just something crazy like him. So we won't pay for marketing. They'll write about us. And he said, well, what do you think? What do you may have in mind? I said, well, we're going to do a bicycle race from Cairo to Cape Town using this rugged, cheap, you know, uh, simple bicycle. And uh, since the idea was so crazy, there's no way you're going to do this. There's no way you're going to succeed, etc., etc. I said, well, they're going to they're gonna write about us uh, and, and that's going to be our publicity, our marketing strategy. So that's kind of uh, where it started. Now, what happened next was uh, uh, that my my partner, my colleague, who did the, the actual study, who who wanted to be entrepreneur on paper, but when he realized that entrepreneurs don't get paid for many years, <laughs> he he got cold feet, and at the same time, he got a very good offer from Deloitte to work for like, as a consultant for them. So, so he, he got cold feet and, and I was, as I said, very busy with what I was doing. So I just put the project aside. Um, but then a few months later, I, I, um, my board member, that uh, NGO, um, suggested that he heard about my bicycle idea uh, production. And he said, Henry, I, I want you to meet someone. And he set up a meeting. And it was a Canadian Dutch fellow, a very avid cyclist, a, a racer, actually. 
um, who actually had a little uh, factory producing some parts for bicycles. Um, so we had lunch and uh, and I told him about the idea and, and he said, Henry, you don't want to go into bicycle business. You, have, you don't stand a chance. You have no idea how the Indians and Chinese operate. You know, they're going to lower the market until they, you know, it's going to drive you. It's just not. But I love the idea of Cairo to Cape Town as a bicycle race. Um, so let's do it. And, you know, it took a while, I thought about it, and then I said, all right, let's, one day maybe, and um, and, um, and then we actually decided, let's do it. That was in um, 1993, just before I, I, I quit the organization. So we, we put a proposal, uh, we put a little brochure um, together, we were going to, this is before internet, uh, we, we needed to figure out a sponsor, because there's no way you could market this without any sponsorship. And then there was a terrible, terrible uh, terrorist attack in Egypt, where about 60, 70 German tourists were massacred. And uh, we sat around and looking at each other and said, well, this is not going to apply right now. There's no way anybody's going to give us any money. So we put it aside. And as I said, then I left for Israel. He got into a terrible car accident, spent six months in a hospital. And years started going by. My, my partner, the fellow oh, that... Oh, jeez. Yeah. The fellow that wanted to do this bicycle race across Africa, and uh, and uh, so we just kind of periodically once a year spoke on the phone, or, or when I came to visit Canada, we had a cup of coffee. Um, but when that World World Bank project uh, didn't happen, um, I picked up the phone and I said, Michael, uh, remember we've been talking about this now for ten years. Well, it's now or never. I'm turning fifty. It's now or never. If we are going to do this bicycle thing across Africa, I'm not getting any younger. Um, are you in or are you out? And, uh, you know, 24 hours later, he said, I'm in. And uh, that was in February, literally my birthday, I believe. And I turned 50 in 2002. And by January uh, 2003, there were 35 of us standing in front of the pyramid with bicycles ready to roll. Holy cow, that is... That's what happened. And you were going from Cairo to Cape Town. Cairo to Cape Town. Self-supported? No, no, it wasn't self-supported. We we figured out... Uh, so so the, the idea was very simple. And, you know, I'm not uh, Mr. Bimont that you interviewed. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not a super athlete. And, and so um, the way we figured out, we're going to create a kind of expedition where the average people older than me, younger than me, uh, who are not necessarily avid athletes, be able to do this. And we came up with a concept that we're going to average sort of uh, 60, 70 miles a day. And we're going to have uh, two two big uh, supporting vehicles, two trucks, which will ca- carry everything from uh, support staff to uh, food and water and emergency supplies and stuff like this. And that we are essentially going to try to cycle in 100 cycling days or 120. We would, the concept was we would cycle about five days on average and then take a rest day. And, and the rest day would be ideally either in big cities, capital cities, where people can uh, reconnect or, or we can buy supply. Um, and Or people can do a segment. So some people join us just for one segment. So for example, Cairo to uh, Cairo to Khartoum, Sudan was one segment. It was about two, two and a half weeks. Uh, Khartoum to Addis Ababa was another segment and so on. And so what, that was the concept that we would do this. It wasn't properly scouted. In fact, part of the roads, uh, none of us ever been on. So we had no idea 
what's waiting. We had no idea where we were going to sleep. It was all in tents. So I would always give instruction to the driver I had with the vehicle that, you know, you drive 60 miles or so and you start looking for a place where you can uh, you can find camping and water for uh, 30, 40 people. You know, we were actually, more, yeah, around 40 with staff, 40 plus people. So I had no idea. Some days would be 60 miles, some days would be 80. <laughs> we had simply no idea where we're going to sleep and what, can, what we're going to encounter and, and uh, how difficult it's going to be the road. 40% was essentially off-road, so dirt roads that we were going to do. And that was fine, except when it rained, rainy season in Africa with dirt roads, some of them were essentially mud roads. So bicycles, mountain bikes would get, we get, we, we got 60 miles much faster than the trucks. So the instruction to the fastest rider, because we didn't cycle as a group, everybody went at their own speed. So the instruction to the, the fastest rider was you cycle around 60 miles or so and then find a tree and sit and wait until until the truck shows up or until one of us, the organizer, shows up in a, on a bicycle and then take charge. So that was the concept. And of course, everybody's... Now, the biggest challenge for us, first of all, you know, nobody has ever tried crossing with bicycles borders so nobody knew how challenging that was but more to the point there were areas uh, starting from egypt to several countries where uh, you were either going to military zones or conflict zones where where you had to uh, where they won't, would only allow convoys and uh, so we had no idea what that would happen. I managed, again, through my contacts and through my work in Africa, essentially to negotiate the passage through this. And, and I was given the permission to do it without being in a convoy. So imagine when we are going through southern Egypt and the road is essentially empty. We are just on it. And you, you're cycling and we are spread around. The fastest cyclists are little racers. You know, there may be... 30 miles ahead of me or 40 miles ahead of me, I'm in the back going slow and looking. And then all of a sudden, a convoy of 50 or 60 buses passes by you with all tourists going to southern Egypt. And and they're like, what's going on? You know, every every 200 meters or so, they see a bicycle waving at them. <laughs> so it was quite a scene. Of course, the cyclists were always very nervous because they had no, and most of them have never been in conflict zones, so they had no idea what to anticipate. Um, so they were all nervous. Sometimes they went as a group, bunched as a group, and um, some of them would hang around with me, even though I was very slow, because they, they, they didn't feel comfortable cycling by themselves. Um, but uh, we had no issue. We had no problem. We did have some support from Egyptian army. There was one vehicle in the front and one with the first cyclist and one vehicle with me or behind or whoever was behind. And that was sort of the, the, the protection, if you will, that we had similar, similar thing. We were in northern Kenya and through Ethiopia. We, through Tanzania, we went through area which was all dirt road. And years ago, they had all kinds of banditry there. So there was very little traffic, but again, um, I, I through my contacts, I was assured that that was years ago, nothing to worry about, and they were right. Um, so yeah, we did this. You know, the first one in particular, it was a lot of tension, a lot of stress for on people's, um, and of course, you know, I, I felt comfortable, but you never know, you know, you just never know. I have, I just have so many questions about that and just how you figured it out how you made it happen how you got 40 people to go with you i mean i don't know 40 people that would want to go do that or could afford it or or would have the time 
Well, again, you know, fortune, you know, when you have a positive outlook on life and things you, you believe things are going to work out. In this case, what happened again, I was very fortunate. Um, I have a very good friend here in Toronto um, who is a well-known journalist who periodically when I traveled the world, I pitched him some stories, some of them, some of the idea he used. And when I first told him this in 1993, that we are thinking I have this crazy idea going through Africa on a bicycle, he loved it. He just thought, this is great. So in, in 2002, when me and my partner set up the website, I, I picked up the phone and I, I called my friend Michael, also Michael, and I said, Michael, I need, I need to pick your brain. I need to find out how I can, how I can get some publicity on this idea. And Michael worked for uh, the Globe and Mail, which is, you know, the New York Times of Canada, if you will, at least in those days. And we had a cup of coffee and, uh, and he said, you don't need any publicity. I'm going to write this story. It's going to be on the front page of the Globe and Mail. And I laughed. I said, come on, Michael, we are old buddies. Don't humor me. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, it's a great story. You'll get on the front page of the Globe and Mail. I said, Michael, we haven't done anything. We're just saying we're going to do this. He says, Henry, anyway. So um, he came and interviewed me and my partner um, and product photographer, and then um, we were ready to roll. Um, so uh, he called me up and he said, uh, you're going to be on the front page of the weekend edition on, on, on Saturday. And I, I, I kind of, you know, I, I didn't take it seriously because, again, I had some experience with media before and I knew that stories get canceled and things change. And, you know, so I, I didn't think much of it. And anyway, Saturday morning, I get a phone call from him and there's kind of a low voice and say, Henry, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I said, oh, Michael, don't worry about it. You know, and he said, you're not on page one, you're on page four. Oh, my gosh. Um, and it was a big story, essentially a full pictures. And, you know, within 24 hours, we were getting emails from as far as Sydney and as far as Tokyo. It, it, it sort of taught me a big lesson how the impact by that. By now, we had the Internet and, you know, things, stories are, sh are shared. Um, and, and literally, you know, it's only 10 years later from what we, when we originally thought of this. And, and the impact, the world has changed significantly. And uh, the impact of this was that, uh, you know, we were all of a sudden people heard about it and heard about it around the world very quickly. And then we followed up with some of this, you know, then we, we started reaching. Once we realized that the media likes this, we, uh, my partner, who I said, who's Canadian-Dutch, uh, flew to Holland where the Dutch media picked up on it, that he was Dutch, and we got some stories from there. So we got some Dutch people who were interested in coming. Yeah, so we, we sort of uh, tried to approach the media. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. We approached the New York Times. They promised a big story, and of course, at the end, they didn't do a thing. <laughs> And um, but so that's essentially how we got it. And I then I was, you know, how one story then carries you, you know, the, the radio approach you or we approach CBC, they interview me and, and, and the approach I took on this on this uh, interview was that, you know, I'm not an athlete. Uh, I don't have any superpower. I'm not a young person, but I think I can do this. So other people who heard me said, yeah, well, if he can do it, I can do it. That is awesome. And, and it seems like this was the the launching pad for what you're doing even today. Exactly. So it, it sort of expanded, you know, once we were, um, once we were, once we reached uh, South Africa in the last few days, there were four or five, uh, the big back group that sort of, we were all cycling slow and enjoying ourselves and stopping chatting to locals and having uh, drinks there with locals and so on. So um, one of them, as we were cycling, as he was cycling beside me in the last few days, says to me, "Okay, Henry, 
we're there. We made it. What are we doing next? And I just <laughs> rose to the wall. What do you mean what are we doing next? Silk route. <laughs> right. It must have gone well enough that you had the confidence and it was that rewarding where you said, we, we need to do something else. We need to do this again. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, um, in fact, um, our uh, fiscal model for this was that, uh, you know, this is going to be so difficult, so challenging for people particularly who have never been to Africa, which essentially was just about all of them, that half of them, by the time we reach Nairobi, half of them are going to be gone. You know, they're going to quit. They're going to go home. And that's one of the reasons why we're going to big cities. As we were uh, coming to Nairobi, a halfway point, I I was lying in, in, in my tent and I was thinking like, What's going on here? I don't get it. Everybody here is hungry all the time. They're dirty. They don't get enough water to drink and to and to wash. And you know, and they're exhausted because you know we were really pushing. You know, you're doing 60 miles on dirt road and hills and so on. I mean, and day in day out, this is not one day. And I'm saying like, what the heck is going on? How come nobody's quitting here? And not only nobody's quitting, they're all happy. You know, people who have never squat toilet all of a sudden, people who are using liter of water, water bottle to wash themselves at the end of the day. Like, how the hell are these people so happy? What's going on here? I couldn't get it. And, and um, you know, eventually I figured out that, you know, that, uh, that there is a certain joy to, to pushing yourself and learning and, and, and stressing out and all sorts of other things. There's a real attraction to it. And, and a, a real learning experience about yourself, about the world, about changing your habits, about your limitations, and so on and so on. So to me, there was a magic to it. And, and myself included, I, you know, I mean, I, I was never in such a good shape in my whole life. And I, I couldn't understand what's going on. You know, how come I'm feeling so good? <laughs> Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. That that is a really fascinating observation. And and, and would would you say for that first experience, how bad was the worst aspect of it in the sense of danger or in the sense of uh, you know social unrest in some of the countries you're going through? Did did your worst fears ever happen? So, um, you know, being a kind of a pragmatic and practical person, engineer, if you will, I, I always sort of said, you know, one has to look at life with, a, you know, what's real and what's, what's uh, perceived dangers. Now, perceived dangers are everything that people think, war zones and, and diseases and you name it. But the real danger, believe it or not, going through Africa, in fact, through any of the world, we've been now, you know, we cycled, I cycled through... 80 countries, and I, I've been on six continents cycling. The real danger is the same as is in Toronto. These are called drivers. If you look at statistics, how people get hurt, you know, when Americans travel, how do they get hurt? You know, when Canadians, all of us travel. When you look statistically, is it terrorist attack? Is it kidnapping? You know, um, is it even worse? When you compare the real numbers, it's mainly accidents from roads and and so um and we actually faced that you know we were actually in zimbabwe we were uh, a, a driver uh, essentially on an empty road because because uh, there was gasoline shortage we had the roads to ourselves and a driver full with cars coming from a wedding hit three of our riders again uh, 
I, when I came across that accident where the, the rider that was looked the most seriously hurt was lying on top of the windshield of the car that hit him. There was blood coming out of his mouth and we didn't move him. We waited for uh, for ambulance. When I took a look at him, I said to myself, he's not, never going to walk again um, because he literally landed with his helmet on top of the windshield. You know, that the force of the accident threw him into the air and he landed with the head on the windshield. Anyway, uh, in the second rider too was in terrible shape. Bottom line to tell you again how fortunate it is. We took him to a hospital and he was x-rayed head to toe and the doctor came to me and he said to me, Henry, we're gonna observe him overnight, the two of them, uh, just for, to make sure there's no internal injuries, but they're fine and they'll be riding in a, in a week. And he was right. We had to get to put two new bicycles <laughs> somewhere or repair the bicycle. Yeah, did, did they even want to ride after that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. These people are, you know, it, it's in fact, it's the best thing. You don't want to get on a bicycle very quickly, you know, because you want to just get over it. You know, you don't want to deal with PTSD afterwards. The best thing is to get back, back in the saddle. You know, this is what they do with pilots when they crash, apparently. So um, this is the closest thing that happened. You know, this is the real danger. And I say this over and over again, you know, over years and years of, you know, of hundreds of thousands of miles that we have cycled around the world in large groups. The most dangerous thing is the driver. It happens rarely. Uh, close calls are plenty, or at least people think there are close calls. But um, we did have a, dry, uh, a rider who was killed in, um, in China, again, on a very quiet road. The driver got a flat tire, lost control of his vehicle, who obviously was driving way too fast, and killed one of our riders. And so that's the only serious accident as far as vehicles. We have had other, you know, motorcycles uh, hitting a cyclist, and they fall off and they hurt themselves. We had that kind of accident. Um, minor brushes when, you know, the vehicle does touch you or something, and you fall and you hurt yourself. Um, but the, the only serious one that we had was that. Um but there's plenty of close calls, yes. There's plenty of, uh, you know, vehicles coming way too close. And, and uh, yeah, things things like this do happen. And uh, and I, I wrote a piece two or three years ago when a, when a rider was was hit here in Toronto that I, that, uh, I, I cycle around the world and, and cycling on Main Street of Toronto, I have more fear than cycling anywhere else in the world. And it's true because the Main Street in the grid of Toronto don't have bike lanes, and inevitably, if you ride like I do all the time, uh, you got to use it sometimes. And the vehicles are, you know, the speed limit is uh, what 40 miles an hour or so, and, and or 35 miles an hour, 60 kilometers. But of course, the drivers are going 80 kilometers an hour. I I really do have fear whenever I come to the major road like that. But I wanted to hear a story from you about, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you started. TDA cycling after this experience, global cycling at some point, and you've been doing that for years. I, w- I want to hear the story about being approached by a uh, by an elephant. You had an encounter. Can you tell that story? Right. So um, as we were talking, you asked me the real dangers, and I told you perceived and real dangers. So you know, over the years, one of the key questions always uh, from people who have never done anything like this is: Is it safe? Is it safe? And I would always tell people, um, essentially, don't worry. Don't worry about uh, war zone. Don't worry about kidnapping. Don't worry about terrorists. Don't worry about the wildlife, which is a lot of people worry about wildlife. You know, the only thing you have to worry is the drivers. 
So there you go. I, the irony of irony is the only person who had a real serious running with the wildlife was me <laughs> in in uh, in India. Oh my gosh! We were we were cycling in southern India. We had a wonderful first time. We were cycling a tour to India, and I had plenty of apprehension. I never been to India before. I had plenty of apprehension. You know, uh, uh, a country with uh, what one billion plus people. Um, busy, and I thought, how are we going to find peaceful and quiet roads to cycle? Anyway, we it was a wonderful trip, and we were nearing the end. I think we had 10 days to go. We were in a southern southern um, India, going through uh, quiet roads between two national parks. We stayed in a lovely lodge, and then uh, our style is that you have breakfast, you pack in, put put your uh, put your bag on a vehicle and get going, and so people go one at a time or two or four at a time. And anyway, I usually go slow, and I'm I, often I'm the sweep. And we had an American uh, lady, young woman, um, who actually was with me at one point in Africa, and she was having problem with the bicycles. So I was helping her, and so everybody was gone, um, and the vehicles were gone, and. Uh, we, we finally fixed a little problem, and, and uh, she was off, and we were maybe five miles on this very quiet road, forested road, kind of a single-lane road, Indian road, um, that connects uh, between uh, small town villages and, and between, as it happened to be, two national parks where there were elephants. Uh, nobody mentioned to us that the elephants, the wild elephants, tends to move from one part to another. But anyway, so we were cycling. She was ahead of me about 25 yards or so. We were going up the hill about by, as I said, five, six, seven miles from where we just left the lodge. And then all of a sudden ahead of us, um, and we were going on a hill. It wasn't a steep hill, but it was a hill. It was, I would say, about 100 yards in front of her. and I was about 25 yards behind her, uh, there was an elephant with two young ones crossing the road. And I was so happy because, uh, because this lady, we have a section in Botswana, which we call Elephant Highway in Africa, where you see a lot of elephants, a lot of elephants. And she was the only one when, when she went to Africa, didn't see those elephants there. So I said to myself, wow, isn't that something? Now she's getting the bonus. She's seeing elephants, but she didn't see in Africa. Um, and the elephant's peaceful crossing, and as I said, I have had encounters with wildlife uh, all my life. I wasn't nervous, I wasn't particularly worried, the elephant wasn't paying any attention to us. There was a vehicle that happened to pass us and honked at the elephant, uh, the elephant doesn't seem to mind at all, didn't worry. So we kept cycling, and then I kept thinking, you know, I want to catch a glimpse of this elephant. Uh, so I kind of imagined the spot where the elephant disappeared into the forest, because, as I said, it was a forested area. And as I got to this point, and I said to myself, well, I'm, I'm here. Either the elephant is now completely gone. It's in the bush. I can't see him. Or, or I already passed, the, actually, the spot where they disappeared. And as I, as I uh, had this thought, literally out of the bushes, charging elephant, coming at me full charge. And I don't know if you've seen an elephant run full charge, but they can run. I, at that, I think at the time I saw him, it was maybe 10 yards from me. Uh, and so I had to sort of figure out what to do at this point. Um, and my thought was, well, I'm going to make a U-turn and go downhill because that way I can get some momentum and get away from the elephant. But being a single lane and, uh, and for, I, I had to figure out not to get, not, not to go on the dirt. 
so I tried to make a sharp turn and I fell. At which point I sort of thought, well, uh, the only chance I have right now is to run into the forest and, and zigzag in the forest somehow. Um, so I, the elephant, um, I, I made a quick decision. You know, your mind, it's, it's not like you have plenty of time. Your mind just takes over um, what to do. And, and I saw the elephant coming and I sort of almost decided I was going to run almost towards him, sort of slightly to an angle so to force him to make a sharp turn, so to slow him down. And, and I, I, I did, you know, I, I ran and uh, I heard behind me uh, the elephant stepping on a bike. So I sort of congratulated myself that it worked. <laughs> and then I said, well, I need to make another. By then I was in the forest, sort of, on the outskirts in the trees. I said, I need to make another sharp uh, turn here to slow him down again. Turn, And as I was making a sharp turn, I, I felt the trunk, something getting hold of my ankle. And the trunk of the elephant and I was in there. At that point, I just sort of said, "Well, I gotta go into into a uh, a baby position uh, position uh, to give him as little space as possible." Um, and uh, and the next thing I remember was uh, the next thought I recall was uh, my helmet cracking, uh, and I and the thought that possessed me, which was very weird. I thought later on was, uh, "Well, this is very interesting. What happens next?" To my, uh, every time I tell this, the story, I, I, I said, well, uh, you know, my life didn't pass through <laughs> in front of my eye. There was nothing, nothing except what happened next. And what happened next, I don't know, um, because I either lost consciousness or, you know, some, some people believe that the brain deletes the, the painful parts. What I do recall or the next, next recollection that I have is uh, when I'm now flat on my back, and I see the elephant disappearing uh, in a bush, running away from me. Um, how long he he played with me, rolled me over, stepped on me, I don't know. But uh, he he broke a bunch of bones. But I was flat on my back, and and seeing him disappear. And and so I saw lay on my back for a, I don't know how long, um, half a minute, a minute. And then uh, because just a few months before that. I, I undertook uh, some wilderness uh, rescue training on on injured people, so I, I started checking myself slowly, trying to figure out what's you know what what works and what doesn't, what's broken and what doesn't. So I, I went through sort of self testing. I moved my toes first, and on my one toe, the second toe, I, I lifted my knee. I each one, each time, I congratulated myself that things are working, <laughs> and uh, I said this is not too bad. And then I had to figure out. I figured I, I had a sense that my back was broken, and I sort of wanted to, you know, but I knew that it was dangerous if I moved because I could be completely paralyzed. So I lie there and I, I, I try to think, what do I do right now? Do I move my head? I don't move my head. What do I do? Um, but then sort of a moment of panic where I convince myself that I have to move my head because otherwise they'll never find me anyway. <laughs> I'm in the forest. <laughs> so I might as well take the chance. So I lifted my head and I did. And there was no pain. So I was kind of happy that, you know, that uh, uh, I could do that. So then I decided, well, can, can I pull myself to a sitting position, which I did. But by then I realized that my left arm, my shoulder, my wrist uh, was completely, uh, yeah, it was broken in several pieces. Um, I had difficulty seeing from my left eye. Um, and that happened to be also orbital bone in, in my eye was uh, fractured. 
there was anterior, there was my lower back was fractured as well, but obviously not that seriously. I had uh, eventually also found out that I had ribs fractured, but I managed to to sit down to sit a little bit, and then I I figured getting up this is really stupid, so sit and wait for help. But then I decided maybe maybe that young lady ahead of me, maybe she heard it, she saw it, so I yelled her name. She didn't respond. I yelled again. She didn't respond. And I said, all right, let's try it as hard as I can. So I yelled as hard as I can. And then she didn't respond. She was not very far. She was on the road. So she must have seen or heard or something because she came back. I basically just said, don't come here. Just pick up the phone in my bag and call an ambulance. Um, and just, you know, I need your help right now, but stay cool because if you lose your cool right now, you're not helping me. That is wild. And uh, she made a call. She had her own phone. She made a call. She didn't call the ambulance. She called the tour leader who was ahead of us. Uh, and uh, he was actually the partner that uh, that we practiced uh, first date on each other when we took that wilderness course. So uh, he was a few kilometers ahead of us. Uh, he he commandeered, literally commandeered a local vehicle. <laughs> Just told him, drive back. <laughs> and uh, they were there within minutes, and uh, he kind of took over. Um, they called an ambulance, and uh, and I was rescued. I was taken, first I was taken to a town which we passed the day before, uh, which wasn't very far. They patched me up there, and and then a two-hour drive to a major hospital in Mysore, in the big city, where um, I had emergency surgery there that evening, um, and uh, and that was it. Um, I had to have another surgery a year later because uh, uh, <clears throat> the upper arm, which was uh, an open open fracture, um, which I was very very fortunate I didn't bleed to that. But uh, essentially, I had a full recovery, and uh, and uh, four or five days in the hospital, while still lying in the hospital with my computer on my lap and uh, typing with one finger, I I wrote this blog uh, saying, you know, for years I've been telling everybody not to worry about elephant, but today's subjects, not to worry about wildlife, where today's sub subject is. Guess what happened to me? <laughs> oh my Oh my gosh. Well, at least it was you, you know what I mean? And not one of your, one of your, one of your guests, one of your clients. Absolutely. What a story. My Absolutely. goodness. I mean, it, it, no telling what happened while you were unconscious. Um, yeah, no idea. I really don't know how, how close you really were to the thing crushing you. It, it, it's, it's unbelievable. As it turned out, and as I was lying in the hospital, I, I sort of, you know, um, decided to investigate the uh, elephant accident. And as it happened in India, apparently there were, there are average 300 to 400 people a year getting killed by elephants. Um, and mainly because uh, farmers are trying to protect their agricultural produce. And the elephants are trying to survive. And, and, um, and that's what happened. It's a, it's a conflict. Uh, it's a classical human conflict. I personally, I was interviewed on Indian television and I tried to talk about it. I said, I'm not angry, I'm not bitter at the elephant. It, it's, you know, they're, uh, it's their last stand. That's what they're doing. Um, so, um, yeah, that's the story. My goodness, what a story. What an amazing, amazing story. Well, I tell you what, can you tell us briefly about what you do at TDA Cycling and some of the plans coming up so people can have 
experiences like this, the good part, not getting, you know, crushed by an <laughs> elephant, but, but the, the, the adventure, they can have the adventure. Tell it, tell us about that. So the company expanded uh, from the first tour. Um, we're on a normal year. We have now what nine, ten um, tours, and they're usually not a classical two weeks holidays. They're usually anywhere from five weeks. Excuse me, five weeks to as long as five and a half months. Uh, our longest trips are now uh, what we call the North American Epic, which starts in Taktayaktak in northern Canada by the ocean or the oceans um, and all goes all the way to Panama. And then we have another five and a half month trip uh, that starts in, uh, in uh, Colombia and goes all the way to Ushuaia, Argentina. These are five and a half months adventure like the others. We do those every three years, um, different time, different, but we have trips like that. We have a tour de Afrique that happens every year. We have European trips. We have, uh, Asian trips, we have trips all over. But COVID is COVID and we couldn't, we are not doing these trips for the time being. We have a wonderful trip coming up this year across USA. First time ever for me to cycle in, in um, across USA. We have a trip from um, California to Georgia, uh, the southern, southern approach. Um, we have a couple of Canadian trips for later this summer. Um, we are trying to do a Patagonia adventure later this summer, and then hopefully by, by January, hopefully we go back to our regular trips. We do have a trip, the Tour de Afrique, um, supposed to start in mid-January. We canceled this one this past year, and, um, and we have several other ones next year planned. Uh, if you go to our website, tdaglobalcycling.com, you'll see uh, our calendars, our plans for next two, three, four years. We have Indian trip, we have a Madagascar trip, uh, we have a, um, a trip in Asia called Bamboo Road, another one called uh, Road to Shangri-La. Um, some of those trips are every two years, some of them are every, the, real, like the big expedition, except for the African ones, are every three years. The African one be, is the most popular, the most iconic trip, I think, that we organized. And not only we, you know, there's, been, there's a new book right now, interesting enough, just two days ago, um, about cycling the world, um, highlighting different trips. And on my LinkedIn page, two days ago, it popped out. And, and what is the... What is the picture that is showing? Showing a Tour de Afrique. <laughs> There's been lots of books now about, um, you know, iconic cycling, and the Tour de Afrique is almost one of the top, first, second, or third highlighted. Um, so it is a very unique adventure for people who want to do this. The Silk Route we do as well. It's a unique adventure historically. Very uh, that one started in uh, in uh, well, in, in, used to start in. Beijing to Istanbul, um, then we did Shanghai to Istanbul. Now we do again Beijing to Istanbul. Um, we, we have, you know, the route sometimes change because of geopolitics or because of other issues that come up. So, for example, the Silk Route now goes to Mongolia. We didn't used to go that way. Um, but sometimes some of these countries are, you know, become a challenge, meaning the close borders, they have issues. So we, we modify them. Um, sometimes we think something is more interesting than what we used to do. Sometimes, like in Africa, we change the route because they have paid the roads. Those wonderful roads that we used to go are now paid, which is nothing wrong with paved roads, except... The traffic becomes so dangerous and so packed. You know, the old rule in transportation, build a new road, a new highway, and between five years is completely filled up. 
Well, it works in U.S. and it works in Africa. Um, so that's part of the problem. So we, you know, we don't want to endanger people unnecessarily. Um, and so we change the route. You know, we, we go on dirt road or we make a different approach um, and so on. So, um, but it's always interesting. It's never the same. Oh Every this is this is what I do is bike touring. And I've I've guided some I got it across country a coast to coast trip last year actually twenty twenty was my first one, and uh, it was a relay with the company I work for and the logistics and the planning and everything that went into that I I can't even imagine doing dozens of these you know just so many that you do on such a large scale take take some skill take some absolute skill. I think we are unique. I think the New York Times several years ago when they did a story on us uh, called us the, <clears throat> the leading long-distance um, uh, cycling operator. Um, sometimes I joke around with my guys and people around uh, that we are nearly we, we are really a logistic company. This just, just happened to take cyclists across the right, road. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it is. Yeah, it, it really is logistics. Uh, we have a tremendous team. Our people are very unique, um, tremendous skills under pressure. I, that's what I was, you know, sometimes we have clients who happen to complain because they've been on a two-week holiday with some other company and they've been treated really, really well. And they they said, you know, you, your tour leader is, you know, is not like this and not like that. And I said, you know, my tour leader may not be what you expect from others, but when you're in real trouble, <laughs> you need someone who's going to really be uh, cool under pressure and unexpected happen. Well, that's my guys, you know, that's my, and I say guys in turn, both males and females, because I have some remarkable females uh, working for our organization. We have done well, people, we have people from around the world, literally every trip. That's another nice part about our trips that you usually average. Oh, 10, 11 nationalities, and you make friends for life because, as you as you as you know, on a long distance trip, something happened after two weeks when you were the same crowd. You know, you start creating real bonds, and sort of bonds that people may have in you know in military when they spend two years of working for police when they're under stress situation. It's it's a real brotherhood, and um, and that's the nice part about these trips. It's you you create such a camaraderie, such a such a strong bond. That um, and I have, you know, with, with participants uh, who were clients and you know we were friends. You know, we now exchange emails, we go visit each other, and so on, because it, it, it's just such a bond on this trip. So cool, so cool what you've built and, and been able to do for a living. This is uh, really admirable for sure, and you, you you've got plenty of stories to back it up. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Oh, gone. Uh, I don't know. I my 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 instinct is always, you know, people are always reluctant to step into something new. And and I said, you know, just I I'm not just talking about cycling in general. I said, you know, just dare yourself because you, you'll find that majority of things that you think you couldn't do or you you find difficult, etc., are really you find exactly opposite. Not only you can do them, but you find it, you learn something and. And, and it gives you such satisfaction, such, you know, you feel that you're living, you're living well, you know, you're doing things, you're stretching yourself. Um, so, yeah, I always preach that. And if you, if somebody wants to go on my blogs, you know, periodically I write something about, uh, you know, we have a trip now for the first time where we're doing bikepacking. I'm 69 years old, I'm going to go bikepacking for the first time in my life. That's exciting. 
Uh, you know, and I'm, I, I have no idea, you know, I mean, I'm not in great shape, particularly after a year off, but, you know, you got to push yourself a little bit. And then, and then I come home and I'm tired and exhausted or not even home coming to a 10, I'm exhausted. And, and, but, you know, half an hour later, I feel like this is great. I'm feeling so much invigorated. So my, my recommendation always to people is just, just don't give yourself an excuse, you know, because much of the time what we do about everything in life is we're giving ourselves an excuse not to do things. Um, so that's that's the advice I have. Well, Henry, this has been very uh, inspiring. I'm, 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 I'm excited again to get out there and tour. I know we were all kind of waiting last year, but uh, I think we're going to be able to do it again here soon. And I, I'm excited about that. So thank you for what you're doing, for encouraging folks. Uh, Get out there and make it happen. That's what the show's all about. Thank you. All right, yes, sir. All right, have a good one. Bye bye. Right, bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to the show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.